Hey, you're listening to Can I Say That? with Brenna and Austin Blaine. Hey guys, it's Brenna. If you've been listening to our podcast for a while or if you followed us on social media, you know that the reason we are here is to wrestle with hard questions as people who belong to the Christian community and specifically people who believe in the church. And while we know that the church is made up of finite believers, imperfect people, we still believe that God has called us, his children, to pursue justice. And I know that this verse has been out there a lot and you've probably already heard it in the past couple of weeks, but I love Micah 6, 8. It says, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And so when I decided to produce this podcast, there were a few things that I felt that I just wanted to ask the church, why aren't we engaging with these things more than we already are? And that was mental illness, abuse, and racism. And now here in America, we find ourselves where week after week, innocent people of color are dying at the hands of racist cops and racist people. And if we are a group of believers who claim to say that we are for life, we are for the dignity of life of all people, that includes the lives of those who are black. We as the church need to stand with our brothers and sisters and say enough is enough. Today I want to invite you to listen to a two-part series called Racism. The first episode that you'll be listening today features five different voices of people of color and their experience living in America. The second part of the series will be coming out in July and that part will be focusing on what can the church do? What should the church be doing to fight racism in America and in our churches? So If you are privileged to be white, I want to ask that you would listen to these stories today and then ask yourself afterwards, how would these experiences, if they happened to me, how would these experiences make me feel? And then respond how you can through prayer and action. suburb in Orange County. Orange County itself has a lot of different pockets. You have pockets of very affluent neighborhoods, predominantly white, with I'd guess maybe a quarter, maybe a fifth of um, successful immigrants or minorities a part of that. And then you also get very rich 
first-generation communities. For example, after the fall of Saigon, a lot of Vietnam refugees moved to Garden Grove. That's where you get Little Saigon. You have Little India in North Orange County, a huge Hispanic community because we're our close proximity to Mexico and also the Orange Groves and labor that needed to be done there in the beginning of Orange County. And just a lot of people in between. I'm personally Filipino. I grew up going to Catholic school my whole life. Um, my first Catholic school I went to was the local parish school. Um, so people who went there were pretty local to that general 10 mile vicinity. And so with that, you had a lot of Vietnamese people, a lot of Filipinos, a lot of white people, a lot of Mexicans. And so because of that, our church reflected that. We had Vietnamese community, Filipino, um, English speaking, and Mexican. And every year we had our big fiesta, our, our school festival. And there we have our um, food food booths for each community. And it was awesome because we were able to celebrate each other's culture. We got to watch each other do our traditional dances, really cheer each other on and celebrate and like really appreciate who each other was. Like we'd be proud, like, oh yeah, like our friend's Mexican, our friend's Filipino. And like just really, really still feel part of the community and culture. Like our, our birthday parties would be Filipino food, Mexican food, Vietnamese food, It'd be normal, you know, like. We wouldn't even bat an eye. As time went on, though, I would be embarrassed to bring my Filipino food to school sometimes because people would be like, ew, what's that? And I'd be embarrassed. And I'd be like, mom, you need to get me jack-in-the-box for lunch. I need a sandwich for lunch. I need something more normal, more American. The point I'm trying to get at is that Anaheim was a very cultural place. I loved it. And where I grew up, there was a group of historic homes because of um, Anaheim being a colony. So a lot of the homes are landmarks. And then there's also a lot of the homes where they're smaller and considered low income. To me, that was just another part of Anaheim, and I lived in the gentrified area. And so as time went on, I began to realize that people looked at Anaheim in a certain way because there was a lot of Mexicans who lived there. They started saying, okay, this is a low income place. Let us have more community service initiatives here in downtown Anaheim. Or people saying, oh yeah, I'm going to go volunteer at the Boys and Girls Club. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's cool. Like, the Boys and Girls Club's down my street. They have this awesome skate park. Like, really fun place. A lot of cool stuff going on there. But then they're like, no, we're, like, we're volunteering there because it's a low-income place, so we're going to go for community service. And I was just very taken aback because I was like, wait, what? Like, that's just our community rec center. Like, why is this, like, something that's charity? And then I continue on and... As I grow older, there's a huge sentiment of places like Anaheim where people who are from more wealthy areas, such as like Newport Beach or Huntington Beach, would call it the ghetto. And they're like, oh yeah, are you going to go through the ghetto? And like, I get it, you know, you're in high school. But this is where this continues. I'm on this Zoom call with a bunch of Catholic bloggers at this point. This is only like a few months ago. I'm now 24. All this sentiment happened when I was in high school and junior high. Like, you know, I get it. Like, you grow out of that. Hopefully you understand. Like, I understand now the purpose of having, of needing a boys and girls club in a place such as Anaheim. Because, you know, there are a lot of broken homes there. I get that. But here's where I get really upset. When I, my whole life, have to see all these people in TV shows, celebrities, mainly being white people and me thinking okay, like I need to be that way. Like I need to be a certain white person. I need to, and I, I grew up surfing. I grew up dancing. I grew up skateboarding, snowboarding. And these are all like primarily white sports. So I thought, you know, I'm a surfer. I'm a skateboarder. I play volleyball. Like 
I'm in. I'm one of them. I went to the Naval Academy. I'm a Naval officer. You know, like, I'm American. I'm bleeding for this country. That's it. I just, you're just part of one big family. But here's the thing. When you're saying that you serve God, you love the kingdom of God, and you can see the brokenness, you can see the love, you can see we're all one body, but then you go off and say, as a joke, like, oh, like, I live in the ghetto, but actually mean it, and you're like, no, no, actually, I live in the ghetto, like, it's awful. When you work in ministry and you refer to the people that you're serving as the ghetto, then you're using a derogatory term that was once used against them to degrade them, then that's a huge issue, and I don't think that that's where that ends. If you're using that, then it goes through so many other things. And I can say the same for me. Like when I was younger, I used to see the people who live in Newport Beach, which is very nice. Many celebrities live there. And I would say, oh, they're rich. They can no, no way will they ever like see how I live. You know, like that's something I had to recognize myself. But like they saw Christ in me and that's something like I need to be doing for them too. Like I can't just say like, oh, they're from Newport Beach. They will know, they have no idea what it's like to be poor. They know have no idea what it's like to be a body of Christ. Like I have no idea what it's like to be white, you know, like, and they're not colored. But at the same time, I'm not saying like, oh, they're better than me or I'm better than them because I, I live this virtuous woke life. Like, no, like, and I just think that's really upsetting that people are identifying as like, oh, that's the really rich kid or like, that's the really poor kid. Like, cause that also translates into like, oh, that's the black kid. That's the, that's the so-and-so kid that really, that ghetto comment really gets me because if we're really going to be one body of Christ, then we can't be calling each other these derogatory names. We can't be looking at each other in these ways that you're going to promote, oh, I'm going to save this black baby in the womb, but then make fun of where they live later on. Like, that's their home. I'm proud of Anaheim. Parts of it are low income. They are what people would call the ghetto. But guess what? The church is alive there. It's very alive. And you'll probably learn a lot more there, too. My name is Emerson Tillman II. I am an African-American male who is 33 years old with a wife, two daughters, and a son. I have been requested to tell about my experience of racism in America, and it's a pleasure to do so. I've been blessed not to have many experiences of racism, uh, at least that I've actually recognized blatant racism um, that I have experienced. Um, But I want to tell you a couple of stories of what I can recall. One of the blatant uh, experiences of racism is when I worked at a call center for T-Mobile and this customer wanted what he wanted and I couldn't do it. You know, it was against company policy. And so I stuck to my guns and I said no. And before he hangs up on me, he says, whatever. Oh, sorry. Can I say that? (laughs) He called me the N word. Now I'm thinking, how do you know what color I am? by my voice. I think that I had a pretty, you know, professional or dare I say it, white voice. Kind of there's a little bit of reverse racism for you because, you know, black people, African Americans, and you you probably are aware that we put on our professional voice or talking white to get a job or whatever. And that's another thing to go into. That right there points to, you know, a systemic racism of a kind to where a black person has to talk a certain way in order to come off a certain way um, to people or to get a job or to be uh, to apply for a loan for a house over the phone or whatever the case may be. In my case, 
it didn't work because once again, I was called the N word over the phone when this person didn't get a service that they requested from me because it was against company policies of who I worked for. Uh, the second and final example that I would like to speak on is just weird looks that we get when we go to certain places. Um, primarily my wife, I, I'm one of the people to really look past, um, you know, overt racism or just people being mean. I'm more naive when it comes to that because I just, you know, to the pure, all things appear. I don't like looking at, you know, the bad side of things. That's just me. However, when we come from certain places, you know, my wife is a little bit more observant even of myself and of just surroundings. And I remember one particular case in general where I had just picked her up from a spa because I got her an overnight stay, a couple of days stay at a spa for Mother's Day. And so we were on the way back. Uh, long story short, car broke down. We had to pull into, we live in Florida and there's a bunch of beaches. So there was like this beach um, restaurant and they were having a Mother's Day brunch uh, for a predominantly, you know, white uh, audience, you know, a bunch of uh, white Caucasian uh, mothers and daughters. Anywho, we had to pull off to the side of the road because my car had broke down. The water heat heater, the water pump broke or whatnot. So we had to stop and we had to go in. I had to get water. We had to stop to see if we can kill some time, maybe take her to the brunch to enjoy ourselves, make lemonade out of lemons. We got a lot of weird looks. My wife was like, gee, you know, people are just looking at us weird and, you know, wondering what's wrong with us. And, you know, that's tended to happen a lot of times in the different spaces where, you know, it's like you're not supposed to be there. You're made to feel and you get the kind of vibe like you're not supposed to be there when it's a, you know, a bunch of Caucasian or whites around. It's just the vibe that given off by certain looks, you know, it's almost like they're looking at you so intently that you can literally read their minds and see their thoughts above their heads that they don't want you to be there. Those are the two examples that I think would suffice for my story, where it looks from being in a place that's predominantly white and you make to feel like you don't belong. I would also like to say that, you know, blacks can do that to whites too. So racism also, it goes both ways. But you know, we've received weird looks for being in a place and made to feel like we don't belong there. And also, like I said, being called a derogatory term over the phone without even, you know, how do you sell I'm black over the phone? You know, I guess I didn't sound my whitest or sound my properest. And he just outright called me the N word because he was angry that he didn't get what he wanted. And so his racism showed in that moment. My name is Samantha and I'm 26. I can start off by saying that I didn't fully grasp the impact that systemic oppression has had on me personally and my family. Looking back on a lot of things, I guess they would be categorized as covert racism or, you know, microaggressions. Since I came back home from my time in YWAM, these past two years that I've been stateside, I've done a lot of research, a lot of reading, because I think in my whole life, this is the most I've ever felt compelled to understand what this is and just the destruction that it's caused, um, the hurt that it's caused, the death that it's caused. And yeah, the deeper I got into that, the more that I could see the grips that it has on had on my family, I think 
and the role that it, I suppose it still plays. And I say I suppose because I, I'm of faith and the Lord has healed, I think, most of the hurt that being brown has caused me. I know that that is a weird way to structure the sentence, but it's fairly true. Being brown has brought harm to my life in ways that I don't think I was cognizant of until recently. I grew up in a mostly white community. I know that my mother especially, because she grew up in the ghetto and saw a lot of horrible things. Um, she fought really hard to get me into, you know, quote unquote, better schools, living in a better neighborhood. And so I grew up around mostly white people. And that was a struggle for me, mostly in middle school. You know, being a Latina person who doesn't speak Spanish brings a lot of grief um, because there's a lot of spaces you don't belong in or I felt like I didn't belong in or couldn't be part of you know so I got made fun of by like white kids because I was like you know a, you know quote, quote unquote a poser wearing their clothes and listening to their music and I got grief from other Puerto Rican kids because I didn't speak their language I didn't act the way they acted I wasn't like of of their culture. That was definitely a struggle. And I think in high school is when I started to realize how much whiteness had influenced my my preferences, you know, like implicit bias. Like I was preferring things that were whiter because that's what I thought was safer. That's what I was even taught by my own family was safer was just like, don't mess with those black kids. Don't mess with those Puerto Rican kids like you know and it wasn't necessarily about race but it was like I guess what they tend to bring with them which is unfortunate because I think it deprives me of the ability to connect with with anyone. My younger years I struggled a lot with my identity because I was brown but acted white and so I didn't know how I was supposed to be and I think that's something the Lord carried me through and at this point in my life I have a lot of liberation for that you know just embracing my family and embracing my identity in Christ I don't need to be a certain way and I don't have to worry about appeasing you know people who look like me because it's not about me being palatable for them it's me just being who I am in Christ and loving them because I know what Jesus did for them. I know their their value because they're image bearers, right? So let's, I guess, jump forward to now. I have had a tremendous shock. I've only been home for two years since YOM. Not just the, the church culture shock, but the fact that there are plenty of racist people in my church who swear by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that they are not racist. And navigating that, how tiring that is. Um, I've had experiences where um, I've been in small group and had people in leadership, you know, make jokes about, you know, the Hispanic culture, like talking with an accent and pretending to speak Spanish and people thinking that's funny. And I'm just kind of there in the corner like, wow, like my father and my people like we're a caricature to you, like that's what you think of us. 
incredibly painful <laughs> knowing that you know i have a friend um her race is technically white but by ethnicity she's bolivian and i know that she has a huge heart for social justice and you know she was pushing for our leadership to talk more about these things especially racism and they just completely shut her down and it wasn't until this whole this whole black lives matter movement just exploded you know everything that's happened with Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and all the other names that are coming to light during these protests and these riots. It took all of that for our church leadership to step up and, and say just a little, just a little bit about racism and how it actually is shaped or has informed church culture. My name is Lyndon Jones. I'm 32 years old. In 2009, I was a junior in college. One night I was leaving the library very late, and when I got about a block away from my apartment complex, I got pulled over by a police officer. I pulled over to the side of the road as normal, put my hands on the steering wheel, and two police officers, white males, approached my car, one on each side of the car. The cop on the passenger side asked me where I was going and what I was doing, and I told him I was leaving the library, about to go home to my apartment right across the street. The other cop on the driver's side told me that he needed my license and registration, so I got it for him. He began to, again, aggressively ask me more questions about my whereabouts, what I was doing, where I was been, who I was, how old I was, what my major was, and things like that. They both began to aggressively yell at me, cuss at me, and ask me if I had any drugs or guns on me in the car. I told them no. They said that they needed to search the car to verify because they had probable cause and suspicion. The cop then asked me to uh, exit the car, and as I began to open the door, he grabbed me by my shirt and forcefully threw me on the hood of my car. He was yelling at me, cussing at me, screaming at me, telling me don't move, telling me why am I crying, using racial slurs, demasculating terms, really just asking me, you know, where are the drugs? We're going to find them. Don't lie to me. If you lie to me, it's going to be worse for you. The other cop got my book bag out the back seat of the car. He dumped my books and my laptop out on the side of the road. As the other cop began to continue questioning me and asking me where the drugs are, he pulled out his gun on me saying that I was being forceful. Once that point happened, I kind of went into a stage of shock, uh, panic, kind of just went numb kind of sound just kind of went out and didn't really hear too much just out of fear. The cop then proceeded to put handcuffs on me and told me to not move. Uh, At that point, they walked away, put his gun back in his holster. They went into their car. They ran my license plate, uh, my driver's license. Probably 10 minutes later, they came back and they said that I checked out clean and that I didn't have any warrants, that my license wasn't suspended, that my license plate tags were good, and everything checked out just fine. And I asked the police officers, if everything was okay, why did you have to pull me over and treat me like this? And then the cop who pulled his gun out on me said, i never seen you in these parts before, boy, and I don't want to see you here again. In 2018, my family and I was preparing to relocate across the country from Indianapolis, Indiana, to Houston, Texas. So before we left, we had a going-away party where we invited our friends and family to come hang out with us, uh, laugh, eat, talk, share some memories. And so we invited mostly 
people from the two churches that we were a part of back home. The first church was a predominantly black free evangelical church, and the second church a predominantly white reformed church. As we're socializing and talking and hanging out, a gentleman approached me and said that they were going to start leaving soon and that he wanted to tell me his last goodbyes. So he pulled me to the side and he told me that he was so grateful and thankful to God that the Lord brought us to the church and that he always enjoyed my teaching and preaching and that he would tell the leaders of the church that I was probably one of his favorites of all the other guys. And I thanked him for his compliments and his words of encouragement. And then he looked around a couple of times to look and see who was around us and kind of see if the coast was clear. And he moved closer and stepped into my personal bubble and leaned into my ear and whispered to me, the long-standing sentiment at our church has been that we cannot learn anything from a black man. And I was shocked at what he had just told me. I mean, I understood what he was saying. But at the same time, it was a very bitter statement to digest. Hello, my name is Yinka. I grew up in Nigeria, which is west of Africa. And when I was 13, I moved to the US. I stayed in the United States till I was about 26. And in my time in the US, it was the very first time in my life that any kind of character trait or characteristic was assigned to me solely based on the color of my skin. In the US, I'd experienced some kinds of microaggression, but the most blatant experience with racism were are the experiences I'll share in the next few minutes. Um, microaggressions like walking into like an elevator and the only other person there clenching their purse and looking at me afraid, or when my sister and I were walking down the sidewalk and the lady in front of us just looked really terrified and started to walk faster just at the sight of us. But the other experience, or the first experience I'll share, was when my cousins and I were walking through my aunt's neighborhood and the police officer was called and the police officer pulled up and we asked what the matter was or if everything was okay. And he said, the neighbors are called because black men were in the neighborhood. Um, it was devastating to say the least. And the second experience, um, a few years ago, I had ended up in the ER and when I was there, the second nurse I had just looked irritated from the moment she saw me. And I figured it's two in the morning and I don't want to be here. And I figured she doesn't want to be here there as well. But as, as I, my time in the ER continued, I started to have an allergic reaction to a substance I was given. And as my chest started to tighten, um, she was close enough for me to see the expression on her face and hear the conversation she was having on the phone with her friend. I'd asked her if she could help, but I'd said it was probably nothing, but my chest was starting to tighten. She glanced at me and she kept on staring at her screen and continued her conversation with her friend. I paused just in disbelief, really, and then I said again, I was like, it's probably nothing, but my chest is tightening and I'm having trouble breathing. Um, she remained where she was until the doctor next to her I just looked just bewildered at what was happening and in that moment she came to help. The doctor was white and I wondered if that doctor wasn't there, if she'd have just let me be there, suffocate. And then later on when the pain that started, um, they led me to the ER started again and I asked her for help, she just walked away and she didn't return. So these are some of the experiences um, I've had in, in America being a person of color. Devastating to say the least, you know, to imagine that the people would treat a human being um, or other human beings unkindly and as though they don't deserve dignity 
solely based on the colour of their skin is deeply wicked and um, heartbreaking to say the least. If today's episode was challenging for you, or if you have questions, I want to invite you to follow us on Instagram at Can I Say That Show or on Facebook at Can I Say That Podcast. As we prepare for the second part of this podcast series, we want to ask that you would send in your questions that you have about racism in the church in America. We are really excited for our guest speaking about racism in the church and what we can do as Christians. And we want to invite you to be a part of an ongoing dialogue about what you can change in your own life and what you can change in your community to help fight racism and the unfair treatment of all people who've been made in the image of God. And before we end, I want to thank the people that shared on today's show for being vulnerable and taking the time to give us an idea of what it's like to be a person of color here in America today. So thank you to all of you, and I look forward to talking with you and learning more as we go. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you want to learn more about Can I Say That? Our guests on the show or submit questions and participate in polls, please join us on Instagram at Can I Say That Show? We love interacting with our audience and hearing how this show has affected, changed, and challenged you in your own walk. So please join us.